Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called From the Daily Mass to the Domestic Mess. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May 11, 2014, which happens to be Mother's Day. The Lord walks among the pots and pans, said the Spanish mystic and Catholic Saint Teresa of Avila. Teresa's assurance sounds good, but it feels like a far cry from the first days after the resurrection. In Acts 2.42-47 for this week, <coughs> The believers experience many wonders and miracles done by the apostles. They sold their houses. They shared their possessions. Every day they met in the temple, and every night they gathered in homes to share their meals. The Spirit of God blew like a violent wind, and thousands flocked to the new movement. So, fast forward 2,000 years. Are washing dishes and walking the dog where we meet the living God today? Is that the most we should hope for? What about God's mighty acts of power? Where are his signs and wonders? Just what is the abundant life that Jesus offers this week in John 10.10? 10? Has the Spirit's rushing wind become a mere whisper? Not long after Luke wrote, we know that Christians started asking similar questions. The prevalence of dreams, signs, wonders, and miracles gradually waned in the decades after the apostles. And conversely, as apocalyptic vision became less vivid, the church's polity became more rigid. Was this what God wanted, the bureaucratization of a revolutionary movement? Around the year 150 AD, the prophet Montanus taught that the decline in the Spirit's manifestations resulted from the Church's moral laxity in matters like divorce and fasting. He claimed to have direct revelations from the Spirit. The sect named after him, Montanism, was characterized by fanatical zeal rigorous asceticism, and a preoccupation with supernatural manifestations of the Spirit. The most famous Montanist was the African theologian Tertullian. Writing in the third century, Tertullian gives us a snapshot of the movement. He writes, We have among us now a sister who has been granted gifts of revelations which she experiences in church during the Sunday services through ecstatic vision in the Spirit. And after the people have been dismissed at the end of the service, it is her custom to relate to us what she has seen. As you might imagine, Montanism made mainstream church authorities nervous, and they responded in two ways. Derision and denial. 
The historian Eusebius derided those who, quote, rave in a kind of ecstatic trance. He dismissed their bastard utterances as, quote, the demented, absurd, and irresponsible sayings of a presumptuous spirit. The Montanus, he said, babble in a jargon that is contrary to the custom of the church, which had been handed down by tradition from the earliest times. Then there's Hippolytus, a contemporary of Tertullian, who was martyred in Rome in the year 235. He taught that miraculous visions and direct communications from the Spirit ended with the revelation of John around the year 100. He said that the Spirit worked differently now than in the apostolic days. God speaks clearly, sufficiently, and reliably through three means, said Hippolytus, the canon of scripture, the creeds of the councils, and the clergy of the church. We don't need to make a binary opposition between God's presence in miraculous interventions and in the church institution. Montanism always had detractors and defenders, and the institutionalization of the church was both inevitable and necessary. The genius of Teresa's observation about finding God among the pots and pans is that it, that is that it, it suggests a third way that the Spirit meets us. I recently read Anne McDermott's new novel called Someone. It's her first novel in seven years and won the National Book Award for Fiction in 2013. The bland and anonymous title of the novel points to its universal subject matter, the everyday life of an ordinary person. In this case, Marie Comfort, who narrates her life story from a young girl until she's an old woman living alone in a care facility. The story is set in Brooklyn, where McDermott was born in 1953, and in her family's Irish-American Catholicism. Marie's friend Pegine lives next door. Gertie Hansen was a best friend for many decades. Her brother Gabe was a priest for a year, but then quit and had a nervous breakdown. Dora Ryan married a person who turned out to be a woman dressed like a man. People die. Friends move away. They get sick and have accidents. The neighborhood declines and the apartments deteriorate. There's a first love as a teenager, then the long love of marriage to Tom. What's going on here is the quotidian life of someone, anyone, told in rich detail. Marie, in other words, is an unremarkable woman with an unforgettable life. Call it the sacred ordinary. The morning after her honeymoon, Marie awakens to familiar urban sounds outside the window. She calls it a disappointing sense of an ordinary day. Even here in the lovely hotel, an ordinary day simply going on. But that's all anyone has, McDermott seems to say. 
And life can be very good indeed with its mysterious mixture of ordinary joys and sorrows. The Celtic tradition is famous for its simple prayers by ordinary people about everyday life. The Celts would concur with the wisdom of Teresa. They specialized in prayers for the mundane matters of life. For them, God was present everywhere and in all ways. The Celts remind us that we can meet the sacred in the mundane. The Celts had prayers for getting dressed and going to sleep, for waking up and for lighting the fire. They prayed for birth and death, healing and protection, hunting and herding, the farming and the fishing. They prayed invocations to bless the loom and the land. Here, for example, is what's called a milking prayer. Bless, O oh God, my little cow. Bless, O oh God, my desire. Bless thou my partnership in the milking of my hands, O oh God. Bless, O oh God, each teat. Bless, O oh God, each finger. Bless thou each drop that goes into my pitcher, O oh God. These simple prayers are sacred acts. They're tender and profound. Notice they aren't the formal prayers of the institutional church, and they sure aren't the ecstatic utterances of a miraculous vision. They're dignified, homely, and eloquent. The ordinary and yet sacred stuff of life in God's spirit. In short, they're holy because they're holistic. The Catholic Gregory Popsack writes that while we meet God in the daily Mass at church, we also meet him in what he calls the domestic mess at home. God's grace allows us to be transformed by doing little acts of family life with great love, wiping noses, drying tears, drawing pictures, playing games, calming fears. At the Vox Veni Church in Austin, Texas, parishioners have written their own Celtic-like prayers for driving in traffic, doing the laundry, brushing teeth, washing dishes. We might also imagine many more such prayers for Little League Baseball and the lawnmower, for the Girl Scouts and the piano lessons. Gregory Popsack concludes, we don't need to escape our homes to find God in sanctity. We don't need to run away from home to pray. We need to follow Christ's example and empty ourselves, entering more deeply into the mystery of the domestic mess and finding the wholeness and holiness that waits for us there. For books this week, I review a title by Randy J. Sparks. The title 
where the Negroes are masters, an African port in the era of the slave trade. Cambridge, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, Harvard University Press, 2014, 309 pages. By the time the British and Americans declared the slave trade illegal in the 19th century, 10 million Africans had been exported to the New World. The single largest slave trading depot was a port called Anamobi in present-day Ghana. Randy Sparks has written a masterly microhistory of what you might call an urban biography of Anamobi. He documents how the African actors in this story were not all passive pawns, but in remarkable ways, powerful agents of the slave trade. The Fonte elite dictated almost all terms of the slave trade, says Sparks, and British traders violated their edicts at their own peril. The Fonte were in full control of their port and their trade. They were the middlemen between the European slavers and the supply of slaves in the African interior. They fixed the prices. They collected rent, taxes, and tributes. They dictated which Africans could be enslaved and exacted retribution if a family member was taken. Most of the slaves were prisoners of war. Some were criminals, and a few others were kidnapped. Before the slave trade, Anamobi was a sleepy fishing village that was a net importer of slaves and an exporter of gold. That equation flipped with slavery. Sparks devotes individual chapters to the absolute master of the Gold Coast, the African John Caranti, a combination merchant, magistrate, and military commander who sent his sons to London and Paris for their educations. And one Richard Brew, an Irish trader who married Caranti's daughter and lived permanently at Anamobi. Together, they exported more slaves than anyone. There were many more actors, of course, brokers, gold takers, ship captains and their crew members, canoe men, bush traders, health officers who inspected the cargo, clergy, insurance companies, creditors, linguist translators, suppliers, artisans, and craftspeople. The plantation economy created a high demand for slaves in America. Rum runners from Rhode Island established Newport as the most important slave port in North America. It was a lucrative, if risky and dangerous, business. In Anamobi, it all crashed in a sudden collapse, much to the regret of the Fonte, due to the perfect storm of the American Revolution, a devastating war with their rival Asante, and 1807 legislation that made slavery illegal. Money and not morality, Thomas Jefferson once said, is the principle of commerce in commercial nations. 
Randy J. Sparks, where the Negroes are masters, an African port in the era of the slave trade. For movies this week, I review a documentary called Cutie and the Boxer, 2013. This film about the artist couple Ushio and Noriko Shinohara was nominated for Best Documentary for the 2014 Oscars. The film opens with the diminutive 80-year-old Ushio in goggles, slamming away at a huge canvas with boxing gloves fitted with paint sponges. The so-called action painting by the neo-dadaist takes about two minutes. Then there's his huge motorcycle made of cardboard. Ushio's work has been featured at galleries around the world. His wife, Noriko, who met Ushio when she came to New York City as an art student in the 60s, is a painter cartoonist, but she's lived in the shadow of her boxer husband. Much of the film explores their stormy relationship and her growing independence and sense of empowerment. Ushio's works don't sell. They appear to live in poverty. Ushio and his son Alex were alcoholics, and yet they've stayed together for 40 stormy years. The film was a favorite at the Sundance Film Festival. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. Cutie in the Boxer. For poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Denise Levertov, 1923-1997. It's called The Servant Girl at Emmaus. From Luke 24, the poem is based on a painting by Diago Velaquez. She listens, listens, holding her breath. Surely that voice is his. The one who had looked at her across the crowd once, as no one had ever looked, had seen her, had spoken as if to her. Surely those hands were his, taking the platter of bread from hers just now. Hands he'd laid on the dying and made well. Surely that face, the man they'd crucified for sedition and blasphemy, the man whose body disappeared from its tomb, the man it was rumored now some women had seen this morning, alive. Those who had brought this stranger home to their table don't recognize yet with whom they sit. But she in the kitchen, absently touching the wine jug she's to take in, a young black servant intently listening, swings round and sees the light surrounding him, and is sure. Denise Levertov, The Servant Girl at Emmaus. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May 11th, 2014. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.